The scripture reading today is from Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, once again. If you're visiting with Liberty Fairmount this morning, we're glad that you're here. Uh, We've been looking together at the book of Philippians, and we're doing something special this fall. In particular, we are uh, following along with Paul's uh, letter to the Philippian church and Christians in our home meetings. And so that what we do today, this week, we'll go through together in our home meetings and uh, just try to work it into our lives and out into our hearts and out into our lives together. So this is where we're at today. We're in the uh, ninth part of a 13-part series on Philippians. We're taking a look at 3, chapter 3, 1 through 11. I've been um, consolidating my guitar gear. Some of you know that I've played guitar in the past uh, professionally for a little while and still love to do it regularly uh, as a means of just relaxing. Sometimes you need redirection in life uh, through other things to keep you focused on what you're meant to do. And so I've been consolidating my guitar gear. And one of the things that's essential to guitar gear is a tuner. Because when you're playing guitar through an amp, and particularly electric guitar, and you're playing hard, and you're bending notes, and there's a lot of vibrato, and you're uh, expressing yourself and your passion through the playing, uh, there, it, it tends to bring the guitar out of tune. So the tuner is necessary to bring the guitar back in tune. Otherwise, the music isn't the music that you mean it to be. You're at odds with the other musicians around you. But if you're in tune with your tuner... You bring the guitar back in a tune, you're able to play the music that you want to play and, and express yourself the way that you want to express yourself. Now, this passage is very much like that. We have life to live as Christians. And Paul's talking about how we gain, how we gain our joy 
from the gospel. And that we need to tune ourselves to that. That we need to redirect ourselves to that. And so that's exactly what he does here. He, and he takes time. If you remember, for those of you who haven't been following along with us, in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul was dealing with a topic of joy, a Christian's joy. What does it mean to be joyful as a Christian? Is this me? You think so? My, my phone is not in my pocket. So we should be good. All right. <clears throat> worst comes to worst, I'm going to carry this. I'll carry it around with me. How about there? All right. Paul was dwelling on the topic of joy in 2.17, but at that point, it was the shared joy of believers, and he has more to say on that subject. But he paused for a moment in the book as we've been uncovering it. He paused in a moment to outline his plans touching on Timothy and Epaphroditus, but now he's going to resume his feed. And so in verse three, we, one, verse one, chapter three, we see this finally. And what he means there is to proceed then brethren, right? So he's continuing on the topic of joy in this, and he's going to be talking everything that he talks about today that we cover today will be about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we're going to learn several things about that. We're going to learn about the assurance of knowing him, the transformation of knowing him, and the satisfaction of knowing him. The assurance of knowing him, the transformation of knowing him, and the satisfaction of knowing him. First, the assurance of knowing him. In verse 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ. And glory in Christ. Now, one of the things that uh, my family and I did this weekend, Friday night, the school week goes on and we all get up early and we all go to try to go to bed early, but we're exhausted by the end of the week. And so one of the things we do on Friday night is we have family movie night. And we watch great stories on family movie night. We watched... I didn't move at all there, so I don't think this is me. I'm just going gonna, gonna to preach boldly without worrying about that. Um, here goes, back in the pocket. All right. We watched great stories. And this Friday, we watched a great story. It was the very first Harry Potter movie. We know them all. We listened to the Jim Dale tapes. And we, we watched it again because it has a, a fond place in our heart. And one of the most amazing and intriguing things about those stories is that Harry, especially the first one, Harry's going along, and his life is miserable. And he has an awful aunt and uncle and an awful cousin. And he just doesn't know how to, you know, it's, it's, worse, it's as bad as it can be. And part of the amazing unfolding of the story at the very beginning is that he finds himself to be a part of a much bigger story that's been going on that he had no clue about. And so the rest of the unfolding of the Harry Potter stories is about his involvement, his integral part in the way that that story unfolds. Now when Paul says, for we, in verse 3, for we are the circumcision... We're caught up then. He's, telling, he's talking to the Philippian Christians. He's talking to us. He's saying, you, we, are caught up in an amazing redemptive story. And it has parts about it that you don't even know yet. You have to take time to get to learn. It's a big story. It unfolds over ages. And so here's, here's a part that we need to get to know. For we are the circumcision. What does he mean by that? Well, as we've been talking, as we go along, Acts 15 gives us some important background for the story in the Philippian church. In Acts 15, there's a council going on where there's a group of Jews who say, okay, this Jesus, good, we're okay with that, you know, reform movement in Judaism, but you need Jesus plus to be circumcised according to the law of Moses, to be saved. You need Jesus plus that, all right? And there was a council about it. 
And the early apostles decided completely against that. So this is not right. We need Jesus alone. So Paul is coming against those who would say here in this passage, we need Jesus plus something. And he says, no, wait. Those who would say you need circumcision too to be saved, they've got it wrong. We are the circumcision. Why? And he's unpacking this story that we're a part of then. What he means by this is, is that we are the covenant people of God. Circumcision is a mark of God's promise. Circumcision is a mark of God's promise. We just recently bought our house in the summertime, and we signed the loan papers, right? And we signed them ad nauseum. There are many, many, many pages of loan papers that you sign when you buy a house. And we put our signature on all of them. It was our mark, right, of our promise to pay back that loan for the house that we owe. In the same way, circumcision is the mark of God's promise, it was introduced, God's promise was introduced into Abraham's family. Now, now, right now, we're going to unpack a little bit of the story that we're brought up into through Jesus. Circumcision and the covenant, the, God's promise was introduced into Abraham's family and then passed on to Israel. And it was a mark of the special relationship. Another word for that is covenant. It was a mark of the special relationship which God had established with them. And it distinguished God's covenant people. You know, one of the things that you read about, you ever read Samson's story in the Old Testament? The strong guy, right? The guy who's uh, able to take on armies by himself. He's, he's got that kind of strength and skill. Well, he sees a woman that he wants to marry. But she's from someone, he's, she's from another people group than the people of Israel. And she, he really wants to marry her. And his dad resists him at one point in Judges 14, saying that you can't take a wife from among these uncircumcised people, right? In other words, from among a people who are not marked by this special relationship with God. You can't do that. And so he resisted her. So there's something about the idea that it's a mark of God's promise that unfolds. We so what God reveals about himself through his covenant, we find out that um, we are covenant people through circumcision. God reveals about himself through his covenant throughout redemptive history. What God reveals about himself through his covenant builds throughout redemptive history. It's like um, a bulb that you plant in the ground in the springtime that uh, fully flowers as the sun comes out and the days get more steadily warm, right? And so here, think about the covenant this way. You've got Genesis 6, Noah. God's special relationship with Noah preserves him from the calamity which overwhelmed his contemporaries. And continuing to unfold and flower. We've got Abram. In Genesis 15, God's special relationship with Abram rests upon a sacrifice which God appoints. And you've got circumcision. God's special relationship with his people is embodied in the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17. And you've got Passover. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a little bit. You've got Passover. Moses and the redemption from Egypt, specifically the people who were redeemed by what? By the blood of the Lamb. And it's a basis for future hope as we're connected to this unfolding story. It's a basis for future hope. Isaiah foretold of the eternal covenant of peace brought about by the servant of the Lord, upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jeremiah looked forward to a new covenant resting upon such a settlement of the sin problem that God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel. He saw that there would come a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant of which the central blessing would be the eternal dwelling of God in the midst of his people. 
And the Lord Jesus, again, coming to the Lord's table, the Lord Jesus brought this glorious sequence of prophecies to a climax. When he said on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when Paul says, hey, gang, Philippian Christians, those who know the Lord Jesus, we are the circumcision, what he's claiming for himself and for the Philippians and for us is the privilege of being the undoubted heirs of this age-long divine program of salvation, this storyline that we're caught up into. The covenant is God's promise, and we're brought into that through the work of Jesus. We're brought into that storyline. We are the chosen recipients of God's promise through Jesus. Now, It just doesn't mean that, though. Being caught up in the storyline also means the application of God's promises. And I'm going to take a little time to unfold circumcision, uh, unpack circumcision for you, and baptism that we witnessed today. We don't have a Sunday school class, and so there's important moments where we can do some teaching on that. And so I want to take a moment and unpack some of that for you. In Genesis 17, in the account of Abraham, also defines the covenant in a second way. We read in verse 10 of Genesis 17, This is my covenant that you shall be circumcised. Now, circumcision symbolizes the application of the covenant promise to those individuals who God has chosen to receive them. It's a sign of covenant between Abraham and God. And I want to I take you now, fast forward to Jesus' fulfillment of that covenant. Think with me for a moment. How does Jesus see himself in ministry in relationship to the unfolding of God's promise in this storyline that we're caught up into? In Matthew five seventeen and 18, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus completes and fulfills. Friends, sacrifices were continually offered throughout the Old Testament. But when Jesus, as God's lamb, was offered at Calvary, all valid sacrificing was ended. The animal sacrifices were symbols of Christ, pointing forward to him. When he came and died for our sin, there was no more need for animal sacrifice. On the Passover evening, as the Jews remembered how God delivered them from the angel of death, they ate the Passover lamb, the eve of Christ's death was such an occasion. And he ate the symbolic lamb with his disciples. And after supper, he gave them bread, saying it represented his body that was broken for them, and wine, which represented his blood shed for them. And just as they ate the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, now they were partakers of the lamb of God, offered for their sin in the New Testament. Thus the Lord's Supper fulfilled and took place of the Passover Supper. And we saw this morning baptism fulfills circumcision. In Jesus, as the sign of circumcision uh, is the God's the sign of God's special relationship and those He would call His own, so baptism is in the New Testament. Think about this, considering these following questions: When a person believed the God of Abraham and trusted Him in the Old Testament, what happened? He was circumcised, right? When What was the outward event that represented a right relationship with God in the Old Testament? Circumcision. 
What was the outward sign that marked a person's entrance into the community of believers in the Old Testament? Circumcision. Now consider the same three questions, replacing the words Old Testament with New Testament. When a person believed the God of Abraham and trusted in him in the New Testament, what happened? He was baptized. What was the outward event that represented the right relationship with God in the New Testament? Baptism. What was the outward sign that marked a person's entrance into the community of believers in the New Testament? Baptism. You see, as people were converted, not only were they baptized, but their families were also. Think about these examples. I'm going to recall some of the story of which we're a part. Lydia, a businesswoman from Thyatira, believed the gospel, and Paul baptized both her and her household. The writer goes on out of his way to call attention to her household in Acts 16. Likewise, an unnamed Philippian jailer believed, and he and his household were baptized. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking of baptizing certain individuals in Corinth, but he also mentions baptizing the household of Stephanus. As the gospel of the New Testament began to pervade the world, with Paul and Peter leading the charge, its message was no less gracious and encompassing than the message of salvation of Abraham in Genesis 17. There was a new sign, but believing parents had the same responsibility and blessings as Abraham and their baptized children who had the great heritage like Isaac. That's why I, as a pastor, if I go to the hospital, I don't have the service of circumcision for new babies that are born here at Liberty Fairmount. I leave that to the doctors, for it's no longer a sign of salvation or being included into the covenant community. And that's why we don't circumcise adults that are converted to Jesus. Baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. All right. So I know there's a lot of the storyline that is unknown to us. And we had to unpack that for a moment. What are some marks of our insurance? What are some marks of our assurance? If we have the assurance of knowing Jesus, what are some marks of them? Our assurance in knowing Jesus is, Alec Motier puts it this way. He's a commentator. That our assurance in knowing Jesus is upward. That verse 3, uh, that we experience the Spirit of God. Verse 3 says, who worship by the Spirit of God. That's us. Those who by the inward presence of the consecrating and transforming Spirit offer the sacrifice not of dead victims, but of a devoted and new life. Uh, Anne-Marie and I, this is not a family show. But Anne-Marie and I do watch, have watched Doc Martin. Uh, it's a BBC show that's available on Netflix streaming. It's about a real uptight guy who's very talented, but he's very socially awkward. And he doesn't know how to communicate with people, and he doesn't know how to talk with people, and he and he's really just puts people off. And he falls in love. And he's struggling because the way that he grew up was that his father held him at arm's length. His mother held him at his arm's length. And so he doesn't have the normal social graces that we need to just interact in basic ways. And so the show is about him living life and trying to figure that out and bumping into people and rubbing up against people and nearly losing the love of his life. And spoiler alert, in the end, he decides, I'm not like my dad. I'm not like my dad. I'm not going to be cold and uncaring, incapable of doing things that are not just for my self-promotion. And what happens is the love that he has for this woman and the baby that they have together transform him. And his life is renewed. And he refuses to be defined by the failings of his father and his love towards his wife and his child. He's made new. 
There's an experience of transformation. In the same way, our assurance of knowing Jesus is, is an experience of his spirit working in us, saying, you're not a part of what life was like without me. You're no longer without hope. You have me. Let it redirect you. Don't be like your past. Be like your future and, and what I've written for you. Be in me. So it's upward, but it's also outward. The right attitude towards Jesus Christ. Verse 3, glory in Christ. A more vigorous translation is boasting about Christ Jesus. He's our joyous theme. With our buoyant satisfaction in him, so that we enthusiastically appreciate who he is and what he's done, and glorify him alone as worthy of all praise, the Lord Jesus. Now look, I had a guitar teacher, John Damien, at Berkeley. Very, very creative guy. You know, he could play all of the standards that we were learning. He could play all of the music we were learning, but he also sort of pushed the boundaries of creativity. He had something called the rubber telly, where he would just detune his telecaster as he played, and he would let the detuning be his expression of music. He would um, sit with a class with a fishbowl, and he would have the goldfish movement be the conductor of the class as they played whatever they were playing together. So sort of out-of-the-box thinking creativity as he was leading us to be better musicians. And he tells a story of how he was taking a composition class from one of the great composers of the 20th century. And he was given the technical assignment of doing a composition based on something they were studying. And so he wrote it. And he tried to bring out all the complicated theory that he had learned. And he worked it all in there. And he remembers sitting down with this great composer to instruct him over the work that he had done. And this great composer took out his glasses and he spent a half an hour just looking at the music and circling notes on the page without talking to him and shifting his glasses and examining further. And then when he began to talk to him, he said, what about verse 4? Where does this chord come from? Where does this idea come from? And my guitar teacher had to admit, I, I really don't know. I mean, I thought it was a cool extension of this other thing, but I don't. I don't know. And then he would go down to verse, or, you know, like, bar 18. Where does this idea come from here? And again, he didn't know. And over and over again, he didn't know. But here, Jesus is our theme. And what happened is that my guitar teacher for music and, and discovering music was discovered these three-note clusters. There are so many ways that you can combine the three notes of the major scale. And so what he did is he found all the permutations of the way that those notes combined. And in his improvisation, in his composition, he connects ideas to other ideas. And you can tell where they're coming from and what they're connected to. And you can listen along with joy. And it becomes beautiful and it becomes part of an expression of himself. In the same way, we have to have the right attitude towards Jesus Christ. It's the theme. It's our joyous theme. Our satisfaction is in him. So it's upward, it's outward, but it's also inward. We have to have the refusal to rely on ourselves. Verse 3, and you can look at 7 and 8 as well, means that we're in Christ, we're not in ourselves. Jesus is like one person doing all the parts. You know, Christmas is coming up, and one of the favorite things that we like to listen to around the house is Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart was, uh, played Jean-Luc Picard in The Next Generation of Star Trek, but he was also trained as a Shakespearean actor, and he's a fantastic actor. And one of the things he does is Dickens' Christmas Carol himself, all himself, every voice, every line, and he pulls it off, and no one can pull it off like Patrick Stewart. It's an amazing thing to listen to. 
but it's him himself. There are no other characters in the play. In the same way, our salvation is in Christ. Jesus is like the one person in the play doing all the parts. He does them on our behalf. But I want to talk about transformation of knowing him too. Verse 7, Paul says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 7 says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This means the worst things, right? It often means the worst things. When Paul says, when he talks about the flesh, he talks about the flesh in verse 4. And it usually means the worst things about ourselves. For example, Romans 7, Paul also writes, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in the members to bear fruit for death. He also says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And he says, finally, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, a lot of you and me included, have looked at the things you do wrong and think about how you break God's heart. And that's right. When you sin, it does break God's heart. Do you know that old illustration that the more that a son loves a father, the more in that son he hates the drunkard and the liar and the cheat. So there's a sense in which you do break God's heart when you sin, But look at this. It's not just the worst things. It's the best things. In 4 through 6, Paul describes himself as flesh. We just talked about that. We usually think of that meaning the worst things, but here is a man who has reached the very pinnacle of moral and religious development. The very height. And he had not yet come into personal possession of Jesus. He had all kinds of advantage. Think about it. In verse 5, he had ecclesial advantage. He had full possession of the covenant privileges from infancy. He had been circumcised on the eighth day. He was brought up in a community of believers. Paul grew up as a Jew, who are people entrusted with the oracles of God, the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Paul was born into all of this. He had ecclesiastical advantage. But he also had national advantage. He considered himself a pure Israelite descent. He was from a tribe which gave the first king of Israel and which later alone of the other 11 tribes remained loyal to David and his successors. So he had ecclesiastical advantage. He had national advantage. He had parental advantage. He was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He was the child of a godly, convinced, zealous religious parents with all the benefits that entailed. They tried to raise him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He had not only had national advantage and parental advantage, he had personal advantage. He considered himself a Pharisee. He tried to strictly adhere. He was a part of the party of Judaism that strictly to hear and be the most respectful, the most responsive to the law of God. And yet all of these best things, all of this religious and moral leadership is exactly what God describes, or what Paul describes as flesh. What are your best things? When you go into a, an interview for work, how do you try to sell yourself? What do you tell them about yourself? When you go on a date, what's the best foot that you put forward? 
What is it about yourself you want the other person to see first? When you work hard at spirituality and you pray hard and you try to do the right thing and you consider yourself a good Christian who tries to work hard, what are your best things? The key point here is that it's not only when we're at our worst, but it's also when we're at our best that we are flesh and therefore not yet acceptable to God. Well, how's this resolved? In verse 8, he brings it home and he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All things, everything. Verse 8 says everything. Now, this is the expulsive power of a new affection. When when guys are young boys, a lot of guys will dream of growing up to be a baseball player, and it's all they can think about. They play catch. They want to play catch all the time. They want to swing the bat. They want to go to practice. They want to play in games. They think about baseball. They follow their favorite teams. They want to be a baseball player. There's no stopping them. And yet, as they grow up, studies start to become important. They realize that they have to get a good job, and so they've got to get good grades in school. And after school's done, they work on their career. And after career, or during career, or during college, there's maybe marriage. And sometimes there's children. And as you get older in life, there's grandchildren to focus on. It's a long way away from that baseball playing dream. It's a long way away. What happens is that one affection displaces the old one. In the same way, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. On CBS, there is a little clip about elephants who retire. And elephants who retire head to a sanctuary, an elephant sanctuary in Hohenwald, Tennessee. And they arrive there one by one. But what happens is they tend to live out their lives two by two. And this is what... This is how it happens. Every elephant that comes here, says the co-founder, Carol Buckley, every elephant who comes here searches out someone that she or he can spend most all their time with. It's like having a best friend, she says. Somebody they can relate to. They have something in common with. And so the elephants, Debbie, has Ronnie. Misty can't live without Doolery. And those are the pachyderm pachyderm pairs. But there's there's a closest friend set of all on this retirement place for elephants. And in the retirement, the closest set of all is Tara and Bella. Tara is a 7,800-pound Asian elephant, and Bella is a dog. And they spend all their time together. They will not, this elephant will not go anywhere without the dog. The dog won't go anywhere without the elephant. You can watch them and tear up because it's so darn cute. It's really, really sweet. And here's what happened. Tara uh, was searching for Bella one day. One day, Bella hurt her back and broke it and had to go have surgery and was away for several weeks. Do you know what Tara did? Tara stood with her head against the gate where Bella was taken away and just stood day in and day out and wouldn't eat and wouldn't drink and pushed her head against put the head against the the fence and just waited until Bella came back. And finally Bella got well enough to come back and the elephant resumed eating and drinking because the one affection 
the all-encompassing affection had taken Bella's full being. And nothing was right without that affection. In the same way, Paul says in verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord. Paul meant it this way. It's in this that I find my joy. In other words, let the Lord be the one who makes you happy. Find all your joy in him alone. Now, a question. Does that mean that we can't enjoy other things? No, on the contrary, C.S. Lewis wrote something along these lines. He said, look, Christians should enjoy the good things of life the most. Why? Because they, like the sun leading back to the sun, all lead back to our joy, who is Jesus Christ. Like Tara and Bella, Jesus and us, the all-encompassing affection, the expulsive power of the new affection. Lastly, There's satisfaction in knowing him. Where are the places and who are the people that you most want to be found in? Who are the people you most want to spend time with? Where are the places you most want to be? When work gets you down and as the winter months Uh, come on to us and the ice starts to form and the snow is coming and it's cold and it's miserable and there's slush in the streets and it's hard to even harder in Philadelphia to park your car than it is now. What, where do you want to be found? Where does your mind go to? What place? Is there an island? Often you'll see uh, posters on magazine stands, you know, advertisements of some blue turquoise water somewhere with a white sandy beach and a palm tree. Where's the place that you think of? Well, who are the people? You know, it's been a tough week. I've had a tough week. I just want to spend some time with who's the person you think of? Who do you most want to be found in or with? Who satisfies you the most? What places satisfy you the most? Paul says in verse 9 that we're found in him that we're satisfying being found in him. The Lord Jesus is a dwelling so attractive that Paul cannot be away, he can't bear to be away from home. The Lord Jesus is a dwelling so attractive that Paul can't bear to be away from home. He wants nothing except to be found in him. Paul wants whoever looks at him to see that he's a man of Jesus. Paul may be in Rome or Philippi or Jerusalem. He may be healthy or sick, or worried, or free of care, but he will always be at home in Jesus. So we're satisfied to be found in him, but we're also satisfied to be blessed with him. Verse 9, we read that there's righteousness involved. There's the righteousness that he abandons, his own, and there's the righteousness he desires, Christ. Righteousness through faith in Christ. Righteousness means being in right with God. Paul believes that in Christ, by faith, it's possible to stand under divine scrutiny and secure the verdict. Paul is in the right. Paul is all that I require him to be. Paul is righteous. When you approach God in your faith through Jesus, is that how you talk to yourself? Is that how the Spirit coaches your heart? That you, friend are all that you need to be, that you are in the right, that you are righteous. But we also see that Paul and we are to be satisfied being like him. In verse 10, we see that Paul writes that he's becoming like him. 
Paul moves from verse 9 where he had taught that salvation is free. It's a grace. It's a gift. It's by God. It's of God. It's for God. It's from God. To verse 10, in which he shows that Christian is brought by salvation into a sphere of moral enterprise and endurance, becoming like Jesus. Knowing Jesus surpasses all worth is invaluable and makes the loss of anything that he would have counted as gain sufferable. What are you suffering through? What have you lost that you would have counted as gain? Knowing Jesus and his surpassing worth, his surpassing worth makes that bearable. Because of this, because of the way that his affections are being reordered, Paul's able to say in verse 11, by any means possible, attain the resurrection. Everything in his life is reordered to the one thing of knowing Jesus. How can you take this into prayer this week? Friends, one thing that you have to know is that Jesus, who knew the Father intimately from all eternity, was turned away and alienated from the Father on the cross, treated as unrighteous so that you could be treated as righteous and have intimacy with God. Jesus, the one who had every reason for being assured in his relationship with the Father, was left alone on the cross so that you could be assured. Jesus, the one who had the satisfaction of intimacy with the Father, went without being satisfied on the cross so that you could have the intimacy that was rightly his. Friends, knowing Jesus is what you most need to be who you're meant to be. Let the Lord be the one to make you happy. Find all your joy in him alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's so much about the unfolding of your redemptive story that you call us to be a part of that is now our story. We're called into interact with these great characters, these great fathers and sisters of faith who failed like we fail, who hoped in you through your grace, through your sacrifice. And now we come to you through Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those promises. And we ask that you would assure us that you would transform us and that you would give us peace because of who we're meant to be and who you're making us to be in you. Be with us now as we continue to worship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.